Section five of Elizabethan Demonology by Thomas Alfred Spaulding. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eva Davis. In Haywood and Brome's Witch of Edmonton, the devil appears in the likeness of a black dog and takes his part in the dialogue as if his presence were a matter of quite ordinary occurrence, not in any way calling for special remark. However gross and absurd this may appear, it must be remembered that this play is, in its minutest details, merely a dramatization of the events duly proved in a court of law to the satisfaction of twelve Englishmen in the year 1612. The shape of a fly, too, was a favorite one with the evil spirits, so much so that the term fly became a common synonym for a familiar. The word Beelzebub was supposed to mean the king of the flies. At the execution of Urban Grandier, the famous magician of London, in 1634, a large fly was seen buzzing about the stake, and a priest promptly seizing the opportunity of improving the occasion for the benefit of the onlookers, declared that Beelzebub had come in his own proper person to carry off Grandier's soul to hell. In 1664 occurred the celebrated witch trials, which took place before Sir Matthew Hale. The accused were charged with bewitching two children, and part of the evidence against them was that flies and bees were seen to carry into the victims' mouths the nails and pins which they afterward vomited. There is an allusion to this belief in the fly-killing scene in Titus Andronicus. But it was not invariably a repulsive or ridiculous form that was assumed by these enemies of mankind. Their ingenuity would have been but little worthy of commendation had they been content to appear as ordinary human beings, or animals, or even in fancy costume. The Swiss divine, Bollinger, after a lengthy and elaborately learned argument as to the particular day in the week of creation upon which it was most probable that God called the angels into being, says, by way of peroration, let us lead a holy and angel-like life in the sight of God's holy angels. Let us watch, lest he that transfigureth and turneth himself into an angel of light under a good show and likeness deceive us. They even went so far, according to Cranmer, as to appear in the likeness of Christ, in their desire to mislead mankind, for, when devils will the blackest sins put on, they do suggest at first with heavenly shows. But one of the most ordinary forms supposed at this period to be assumed by devils was that of a dead friend of the object of the visitation. Before the Reformation, the belief that the spirits of the departed had power at will to revisit the scenes and companions of their earthly life was almost universal. The reforming divines distinctly denied the possibility of such a revisitation, and accounted for the undoubted phenomena, as usual, by attributing them to the devil. James I says that the devil, when appearing to men, frequently assumed the form of a person newly dead, to make them believe that it was some good spirit that appeared to them, either to forewarn them of the death of their friend, or else to discover unto them the will of the defunct, or what was the way of his slochter. 
for he dare not so elude any that knoweth that neither can the spirit of the defunct return to his friend nor yet an angel use such forms he further explains that such devils follow mortals to obtain two ends the one is the tinsel loss of their life by inducing them to such perilous places at such times as he either follows or possesses them the other thing that he preases to obtain is the tinsel of their soul but the belief in the appearance of ghosts was too deeply rooted in the popular mind to be extirpated or even greatly affected by a dogmatic declaration the masses went on believing as they always had believed and as their fathers had believed before them in spite of the reformers and to their no little discontent pilkington bishop of durham in a letter to archbishop parker dated fifteen sixty four complains that among other things that be amiss here in your great cares ye shall understand that in blackburn there is a fantastical and as some say lunatic young man which says that he has spoken with one of his neighbours that died four years since or more divers times he says he has seen him and talked with him and took with him the curate the schoolmaster and other neighbours who all affirm that they see him these things be so common here that none in authority will gainsay it but rather believe and confirm it that everybody believes it if i had known how to examine with authority i would have done it here is a little glimpse at the practical troubles of a well-intentioned bishop of the sixteenth century that is surely worth preserving there were thus two opposite schools of belief in this matter of the supposed spirits of the departed the conservative which held to the old doctrine of ghosts and the reforming which denied the possibility of ghosts and held to the theory of devils in the midst of this disagreement of doctors it was difficult for a plain man to come to a definite conclusion upon the question and in consequence all who were not content with quiet dogmatism were in a state of utter uncertainty upon a point not entirely without importance in practical life as well as in theory this was probably the position in which the majority of thoughtful men found themselves and it is accurately reflected in three of shakespeare's plays which for other and weightier reasons are grouped together in the same chronological division julius caesar macbeth and hamlet in the first-mentioned play brutus who afterwards confesses his belief that the apparition he saw at sardis was the ghost of caesar when in the actual presence of the spirit says art thou some god some angel or some devil the same doubt flashes across the mind of macbeth on the second entrance of banquo's ghost which is probably intended to be a devil appearing at the instigation of the witches when he says with evident allusion to a diabolic power before referred to what man dare i dare approach thou like the rugged russian bear the armed rhinoceros or the hurkin tiger take any shape but that but it is in hamlet that the undecided state of opinion upon the subject is most clearly reflected and hardly enough influence has been allowed to the doubts arising from this conflict of belief as urgent or deterrent motives in the play 
because this temporary condition of thought has been lost sight of it is exceedingly interesting to note how frequently the characters who have to do with the apparition of the late king hamlet alternate between the theories that it is a ghost and that it is a devil which they have seen the whole subject has such an important bearing upon any attempt to estimate the character of hamlet that no excuse need be offered for once again traversing such well-trodden ground horatio it is true is introduced to us in a state of determined scepticism but this lasts for a few seconds only vanishing upon the first entrance of the spectre and never again appearing his first inclination seems to be to the belief that he is a victim of a diabolical illusion for he says what art thou that usurpest this time of night together with that fair and warlike form in which the majesty of buried denmark did sometimes march and marcellus seems to be of the same opinion for immediately before he exclaims thou art a scholar speak to it horatio having apparently the same idea as had coachman toby in the night-walker when he exclaims let's call the butler up for he speaks latin and that will daunt the devil on the second appearance of the illusion however horatio leans to the opinion that it is really the ghost of the late king that he sees probably in consequence of the conversation that has taken place since the former visitation and he now appeals to the ghost for information that may enable him to procure rest for his wandering soul again during his interview with hamlet when he discloses the secret of the spectre's appearance though very guarded in his language horatio clearly intimates his conviction that he has seen the spirit of the late king the same variation of opinion is visible in hamlet himself but as might be expected with much more frequent alternations when first he hears horatio's story he seems to incline to the belief that it must be the work of some diabolic agency if it assume my noble father's person i'll speak to it though hell itself should gape and bid me hold my peace although characteristically in almost the next line he exclaims my father's spirit in arms all is not well etc this too seems to be the dominant idea in his mind when he is first brought face to face with the apparition and exclaims angels and ministers of grace defend us be thou a spirit of health or goblin damned bring with thee airs from heaven or blasts from hell be thine intents wicked or charitable thou comest in such a questionable shape that i will speak to thee for it cannot be supposed that hamlet imagined that a goblin damned could actually be the spirit of his dead father and therefore the alternative in his mind must have been that he saw a devil assuming his father's likeness a form which the evil one knew would most incite hamlet to intercourse but even as he speaks the other theory gradually obtains ascendancy in his mind until it becomes strong enough to induce him to follow the spirit but whilst the devil theory is gradually relaxing its hold upon hamlet's mind 
it is fastening itself with ever-increasing force upon the minds of his companions and horatio expresses their fears in words that are worth comparing with those just quoted from james demonology hamlet responds to their entreaties not to follow the spectre thus why what should be the fear i do not set my life at a pin's fee and for my soul what can it do to that being a thing immortal as itself and horatio answers what if it tempt you toward the flood my lord or to the dreadful summit of the cliff that beetles o'er his base into the sea and there assume some other horrible form which might deprive your sovereignty of reason and draw you into madness the idea that the devil assumed the form of a dead friend in order to procure the tinsel of both body and soul of his victim is here vividly before the minds of the speakers of these passages the subsequent scene with the ghost convinces hamlet that he is not the victim of malign influences as far as he is capable of conviction for his very first words when alone restate the doubt oh all you host of heaven o oh, earth what else and shall i couple hell and the enthusiasm with which he is inspired in consequence of this interview is sufficient to support his certainty of conviction until the time for decisive action again arrives it is not until the idea of the play test occurs to him that his doubts are once more aroused and then they return with redoubled force the spirit that i have seen may be the devil and the devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape yea and perhaps out of my weakness and my melancholy as he is very potent with such spirits abuses me to damn me and he again alludes to this in his speech to horatio just before the entry of the king and his train to witness the performance of the players this question was in shakespeare's time quite a legitimate element of uncertainty in the complicated problem that presented itself for solution to hamlet's ever-analyzing mind and this being so an apparent inconsistency in detail which has usually been charged upon shakespeare with regard to this play can be satisfactorily explained some critics are never weary of exclaiming that shakespeare's genius was so vast and uncontrollable that it must not be tested or expected to be found conformable to the rules of art that limit ordinary mortals that there are many discrepancies and errors in his plays that are to be condoned upon that account in fact that he was a very careless and slovenly workman a favorite instance of this is taken from hamlet where shakespeare actually makes the chief character of the play talk of death as the born from whence no traveller returns not long after he has been engaged in a prolonged conversation with such a returned traveller now no artist however distinguished or however transcendent his genius is to be pardoned for insincere workmanship and the greater the man the less his excuse errors arising from want of information and shakespeare commits these often may be pardoned if the means for correcting them be unattainable but errors arising from mere carelessness are not to be pardoned further in many of these cases of supposed contradiction there is an element of carelessness indeed but it lies at the door of the critic not of the author and this appears to be true in the present instance 
the dilemma as it presented itself to the contemporary mind must be carefully kept in view either the spirits of the departed could revisit this world or they could not if they could not then the apparitions mistaken for them must be devils assuming their forms now the tendency of hamlet's mind immediately before the great soliloquy on suicide is decidedly in favour of the latter alternative the last words that he has uttered which are also the last quoted here are those in which he declares most forcibly that he believes the devil theory possible and consequently that the dead do not return to this world and his utterances in his soliloquy are only an accentuate and outcome of this feeling of uncertainty the very root of his desire for death is that he cannot discard with any feeling of certitude the protestant doctrine that no traveller does after death return from the invisible world and that the so-called ghosts are a diabolic deception another power possessed by the evil spirits and one that excited much attention and created an immense amount of strife during elizabethan times was that of entering into the bodies of human beings or otherwise influencing them so as utterly to deprive them of all self-control and render them mere automata under the command of the fiends this was known as possession or obsession it was another of the medieval beliefs against which the reformers steadily set their faces and all the resources of their casuistry were exhausted to expose its absurdity but their position in this respect was an extremely delicate one on one side of them zealous catholics were exercising devils who shrieked out their testimony to the eternal truth of the holy catholic church whilst at the same time on the other side the zealous puritans of the extremer sort were casting out fiends who bore equally fervent testimony to the superior efficacy and purity of the protestant faith the tendency of the more moderate members of the party therefore was towards a compromise similar to that arrived at upon the question how the devils came by the forms in which they appeared upon the earth they could not admit that devils could actually enter into and possess the body of a man in these latter days although during the earlier history of the church such things had been permitted by divine providence for some inscrutable but doubtless satisfactory reason that was catholicism on the other hand they could not for an instant tolerate or even sanction the doctrine that devils had no power whatever over humanity that was atheism but it was quite possible that evil spirits without actually entering into the body of a man might so infest worry and torment him as to produce all the symptoms indicative of possession the doctrine of obsession replaced that of possession and once adopted was supported by a string of those quaint conceited arguments so peculiar to the time but as in all other cases the refinements of the theologians had little or no effect upon the world outside their controversies to the ordinary mind if a man's eyes goggled body swelled and mouth foamed and it was admitted that these were the work of a devil the question whether the evildoer were actually housed within the sufferer or only hovered in his immediate neighbourhood seemed a question of such minor importance as to be hardly worth discussing 
a conclusion that the lay mind is apt to come to upon other questions that appear portentous to the divines and the theory of possession having the advantage in time over that of obsession was hard to dislodge one of the chief causes of the persistency with which the old belief was maintained was the utter ignorance of the medical men of the period on the subject of mental disease the doctors of the time were mere children in knowledge of the science they professed and to attribute a disease the symptoms of which they could not comprehend to a power outside their control by ordinary methods was a safe method of screening a reputation which might otherwise have suffered canst thou not minister to a mind diseased cries macbeth to the doctor in one of those moments of yearning after the better life he regrets but cannot return to which come over him now and again no the disease is beyond his practice and although this passage has in it a deeper meaning than the one attributed to it here it well illustrates the position of the medical man in such cases most doctors of the time were mere empirics dabbled more or less in alchemy and in the treatment of mental disease were little better than children they had for co-practitioners all who by their credit with the populace for superior wisdom found themselves in a position to engage in a profitable employment priests preachers schoolmasters dr pinches and sir topazes became so commonly exorcists that the church found it necessary to forbid the casting out of spirits without a special license for that purpose but as the reformers only combated the doctrine of possession upon strictly theological grounds and did not go on to suggest any substitute for the time-honored practice of exorcism as a means for getting rid of the admittedly obnoxious result of diabolic interference it is not altogether surprising that the method of treatment did not immediately change upon this subject a book called trial of witchcraft by john cotta doctor in physic published in sixteen sixteen is extremely instructive the writer is evidently in advance of his time in his opinions upon the principal subject with which he professes to deal and weighs the evidence for and against the reality of witchcraft with extreme precision and fairness in the course of his argument he has to distinguish the symptoms that show a person to have been bewitched from those that point to a demoniacal possession reason doth detect says he the sick to be afflicted by the immediate supernatural power of the devil two ways the first way is by such things as are subject and manifest to the learned physician only the second is by such things as are subject and manifest to the vulgar view the two signs by which the learned physician recognized diabolic intervention were first the preternatural appearance of the disease from which the patient was suffering and secondly the inefficacy of the remedies applied in other words if the leech encountered any disease the symptoms of which were unknown to him or if through some unforeseen circumstances the drug he prescribed failed to operate in its accustomed manner a case of demoniacal possession was considered to be conclusively proved and the medical man was merged in the magician the second class of cases in which the diabolic agency is palpable to the layman as well as the doctor 
Kata illustrates thus. In the time of their paroxysms or fits, some diseased persons have been seen to vomit crooked iron, coals, brimstone, nails, needles, pins, lumps of lead, wax, hair, straw, and the like. In such quantities, figure, fashion, and proportion, as could never possibly pass down or arise up through the natural narrowness of the throat, or be contained in the unproportionable small capacity, natural susceptibility, and position of the stomach. Possessed persons, he says, were also clairvoyant, telling what was being said and done at a far distance, and also spoke languages which at ordinary times they did not understand, as their successors, the modern spirit mediums, do. This gift of tongues was one of the prominent features of the possession of Will Summers and the other persons exorcised by the Protestant preacher John Darrell, whose performances as an exorcist created quite a domestic sensation in England at the close of the sixteenth century. The whole affair was investigated by Dr. Harsnett, who had already acquired fame as an iconoclast in these matters, as will presently be seen, but it would have little more than an antiquarian interest now were it not for the fact that Ben Jonson made it the subject of his satire in one of his most humorous plays, The Devil is an Ass. In it he turns the last-mentioned peculiarity to good account, for when Fitzdetrell in the fifth act feigns madness, and quotes Aristophanes, and speaks in Spanish and French, the judicious Sir Paul Eithersides comes to the conclusion that it is the devil by his several languages. But more interesting and more important for the present purpose are the cases of possession that were dealt with by Father Parsons and his colleagues in 1585-86, to and of which Dr. Harsnett gave such a highly spiced and entertaining account in his Declaration of Egregious Popish Impostures, first published in the year 1603. It is from this work that Shakespeare took the names of the devils mentioned by Edgar, and other references made by him in King Lear, and an outline of the relation of the play to the book will furnish, incidentally, much matter illustrative of the subject of possession. But before entering upon this outline, a brief glance at the condition of affairs, political and domestic, which partially caused and nourished these extraordinary eccentricities, is almost essential to a proper understanding of them. End of section 5